Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. Joining us on the star line is a woman who transformed her life from the rural south to a career in the United States Foreign Service as a diplomat, which she discusses in her new book, Muddy Roads, Blue Skies. It's Vela Mbina. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's go beyond the mic. Born in the Homestown community of Midway, Georgia, what's your favorite memory growing up? My favorite memory growing up was probably going to church because it got out, it got me out of our house, out of our front yard where we were like in prison. So I say, you know, I was free there. I could do, you know, a lot of things. I could meet my friends. I could talk to adults, pick their brains. I think that was my favorite. In addition to just playing with my sisters and brothers and learning from them, to me that was the best of what I could experience as a child. You discussed the efforts that you made to try to leave home, but in the end, you ended up returning back to it. Yeah. I I think because my mom and dad held a tight rein around us, we just could not go out beyond that yard. So I bonded real deeply with my brothers and sisters, you know, and my mother and father. So home was like my safe haven. So even though I had the wanderlust to get out there and see what was beyond, you know, the blue clouds of Homestown, Georgia, I still loved home. And actually, a lot of people always wonder why I always go back home. You know, I'm in the Foreign Service and I can go to Paris, London, all these places from my assignment, let's say, in the middle of Africa. But I would go home to Homestown because whenever I would drive on that ramp, (laughs) I just felt safe and I felt loved. Your sisters made an impact in your life, Rachel, Emma. They all, from pledging a sorority, they kind of guided you. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, one was nurturing. Like, you know, that was Rachel. She just wanted to make sure I was safe from what was out there. She was much older. Actually, everyone swore that I was her daughter because she just nurtured me. Even today, <laughs> And I needed that because I like the home, the motherly, you know, type environment. But the other one, Emma, oh, my Lord, (laughs) she was like, go get her. You know, you don't need to be babied. I'm not going to hug you. I'm not going to, you know, give you money. Do it on your own. Learn from your mistakes. You know, it was it was good from both angles, you know, having that nurturing and having um, the go get it, go out there, make it on your own attitude. And I found a happy medium, and that's who I am today. You know, I truly believe that people should go out there and make it on their own. You fall, you get back up. But in the meantime, I know that they're human, and they will need some nurturing, you know. So they did, both of them, as well as the others, made a huge impact as to who I am today. As the oldest of the six kids in our family, there's an impact the oldest plays. How many kids are in your family, and where do you place among them? Um, five brothers and four sisters and myself, so 11 of us. Growing up with six, sheesh, I could see how 11 was a fight. <laughs> it was, and I was the youngest, and you know, and everyone always said that, you know, mom and dad favored you, you didn't have to go in the gardens to plant the corn, you know, you just cried and they'll send you back. 
They tease me today. It's like, oh, goodness, we knew you were going to be a paper pusher. You know, we knew that you weren't going to do anything, you know, um, that was rough. But, you know, needless to say, it is rough being a diplomat. You know, you do get your hands dirty. You get your mind dirty. You get, you know, it's just mind boggling what I got into in the end. Well, let's talk about that. 26 years a diplomat serving 13 foreign countries. Quick quiz. Mm-hmm. Can you name all 13? Of course. Philippines, Peru, Germany, Guatemala, Tanzania, Lebanon. Well, I might name the city instead of the country. Um, Lebanon, Uganda, Cameroon, Sierra Leone, Democratic Republic of Congo, Sudan, Afghanistan, and Tunisia. And I did two stateside tours. So that's, you know, makes a total of 15. Of all those countries that you named, it sounds like a who's who of where not to go. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, God. You know, one of my, when I, after about my third tour, I can't remember which countries, and, you know, we have a hail and farewell at um, when someone comes to an embassy. And when I told, you know, my colleagues and ambassador all the places I've been and what happened there when I was there, they're like, oh, my God. The ambassador said, I will never accept you at any of my posts because you bring disaster. You go to all the hard, the dangerous posts, but I love it. I mean, that's me. You know, I, I joined the foreign service to be in the midst of it, not to hang out in Paris or Rome or, you know, some plush country, they say. Let's talk about your work. What was your responsibilities to the ambassadors? My responsibility was to oversee and manage because I had a staff. I mean, initially I didn't, then, you know, as you grow in, in the system, you become a manager. At first I would oversee all of the communication aspect of the embassy for the ambassador, the telegraphic, you know, just getting information to and from Washington to our other embassies, uh, whether it's was by IT, by satellite, you know, by diplomatic pouch, I oversaw all of that. Then as I became um, a manager, I, of course, became the chief communications officer for the ambassador. And so anything dealing with that, you know, I was accountable for. Then, of course, my staff were accountable to me. I, I did basically that. It was for classified information as well as non-classified, unclassified information. It was Big responsibility, you know, because if something goes wrong with communications, I don't care how good of an ambassador or a political officer or a counselor officer you are, if you can't get that information back to Washington in a timely manner, in the form that it's supposed to be in, um, then you've got a problem. <laughs> so I think I did very well. I worked better under stress. So it was a piece of cake for me, and that's why I couldn't do some of the more laid-back country because nothing basically was happening, you know, maybe a few marches about snow peas or something like that, but nothing um, that was earth-shaking where if it can't get back to Washington, it would be bad. You said to yourself, your brothers and sisters said that you were going to go wherever it was easy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you didn't. You went where it was hard. Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah, and they have mentioned that. And I'm like, we can't see, you know, how could you go to these places? You were so scary. You didn't want to, you know, do anything. Well, I guess because, you know, back then I had all these brothers and sisters, so I was just being bounced around. You know, let's say we 
would go in the potato field. You know, it's not just, you know, what was seven, eight, nine, ten year old going to do when you had all these big brothers and sisters? So it was being built up in me, you know, like, you know, I don't want to be pushed around, but I do want to do something. And I think that's where the seeds started growing. Like, you know, I want to get out there. I want to be the main person. You talk about in your book about being prepared and being overly prepared. How did the Foreign Service help train you to not only be prepared for one eventuality, but multiples? When I first joined, they're like, it's showtime. This is not a career where you learn how to be prepared. You, you come prepared. Well, they do hire like sometimes new, fresh, uh, fresh out of college, but we prepare you. We have a foreign service institute. You bring what, you know, what got you to the interview and, and hired. After that, then they send you, you know, to one of the schools. Like for me, I went to a communication school. So when you get your assignment, when you go out there and your plane lands, it's showtime. You cannot make mistakes. You know, you are pre- prepared mentally, well as intellectually. You know, it's, if you can't perform, they, of course, they might bring you back and retrain you. But after that, you're out. So what, why I knew I had to be prepared and take in everything State Department said about, you know, this is not a joke that, you know, this is your, your government and national security. All, you know, all that depends on you. <laughs> Not necessarily me, you know, but the the individual going out, you know, I just knew that this is what I had to be serious about. And also because I didn't want to go back to small town USA as a failure again. So they scared the heck out of me, in other words, (laughs) into ensuring that I was prepared and and did not take it as a long vacation. In your book, you discuss how you transformed yourself in the Foreign Service, even with complications. Sexism, racism, culture shaming, insubordination, hatred. What drove you when you had all these things happening to you, sometimes day after day? What kept me in the Foreign Service, even though I knew all those things were there? And all those things were wrong. Very simple. I wanted to travel, and I did not want to go back to small town which is Homestown, USA, be shamed or having to start all over again. So I'm like, you know what? People are the same wherever they are in whatever position they have. They, and I hate to speak in general terms, but most people, you know, if they're raised a certain way, that's who they are. They might can change some, but they are who they are just because they you know, wear a white shirt and a white blouse and a black skirt doesn't mean that they are different. So if I know, well, if I was trying to escape, let's say, racism because of the color of my skin back in Georgia, there's no need to run to the Foreign Service because people, there's racist in the Foreign Service from what I experience. There's just, you know, sexism, all that's there. So I decided that, you know, why not have this nice lifestyle where I can see the world and serve as a public servant for my country? I'll just work around all this craziness because I'll have, if I was back home at Walmart or at a company, a Fortune 500, I would have to do it as well. You know what I mean? (laughs) Oh, I know exactly what you mean. You work your way up to the top grade 
of the Foreign Service without being invited to be a part of the Senior Foreign Service. Why was that so important to you? Well, it was important because it was a sense of accomplishment. When I started out, I was we didn't have a lot of Blacks, and especially Black females, in the Foreign Service, and definitely not in the field that I was in. I was with all white men for several years, and then some white females started coming, well, more. I'm not saying that they were not there. I'm like, you know what, you know, I just don't want a job, you know, where I work for folks. I want to have folks work with me and for me, and I can't do that at this grade level, at the lower grade level. I have to work harder, get promoted, and get to those levels where I am, you know, in charge. So that's what I did. I just, you know, worked hard, and the promotion started coming. I, you know, I, I don't play around. I did not play around when it came to my job. It was, I mean, I enjoyed myself, but it was all about the job. I had integrity. I'm dedicated. It was just fun, you know, in doing it. And next thing you know, I was sitting in Afghanistan, and my husband called me and said, congratulations. I'm like, why? He said, you got your one. You was on the promotion list. And I'm like, I literally exhale. Like, I did it. I can, I can retire now. So about two years later, no, one and a half years later, I retired. I didn't need to stick around. Everyone was very disappointed. All the people who were close to me, who I mentored, and they basically like, Bella, please don't go. You can, you can make it into the Foreign Service easily. And I'm like, no, I've done what I needed to do. I, I don't want to hold a, a spot just to have a job. I'm not going to make any, a whole lot more money, just a whole lot of stress. I want to go home, enjoy my family, back to the hometown. And that's exactly what I did. I finished my one year in Afghanistan, and I went to Tunisia because I just didn't want to retire out of Afghanistan. It was just too tense. I needed to like, calm, you know, just, just relax a bit. And Well, actually, I was jumping from the uh, fire to the fire friend. Tunisia wasn't that relaxed, but still, um, I did. And after about a year, it was a two-year assignment, I decided that I'm done. So I went into the office, told my boss, I'm going to finish one year, and I'm going back to Washington, going to retire. He didn't believe it, and here I am, retired, enjoying it. This book doesn't seem like a book of stories. It more seems like a book of lessons, a book of a mom telling their son, their daughter, these are the mistakes I made. These are the experiences I have. Don't make these mistakes. Am I wrong? Actually, you hit it on the nail. Because I, I, I've been keeping notes for years just because I, I was leading a fascinating life. And people telling me through the years, write a book, write a book, Bella, please, you know, you know, you've got to tell these stories. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I retired, I'm like, I don't think so. You know, I don't want to relive all this. But my son, Michael, told me, Mom, you have to write this book. Who else in our little hometown will ever become a diplomat, you know, in the future, well, the immediate future? Write it for my kids. I want them to be proud of their heritage, so write it for them. So I started out writing this book as, a le- well, wanting to write it as a legacy, just stories to tell my grand and great grand that you can make it no matter who you are because they're a mixed race, and I want to make sure that they knew both sides, you know, their father's side. So when I reached out to 
my collaborator of the book, you know, um, well, I was interviewing um, some, and I had to tell a little about my story, and she said, no way, you're not just going to write a story. You have lived an abundant life, and it can still be a legacy for your grandkids. We need to write it where others can learn from it as well. We need to write it based on your values because you seem to have very strong values. Just don't write a story. You know, write stories within each chapter based on the, the value, one of your traits. And I'm like, okay, you know, and I'm glad we did it this way. And actually, my grandkids love it. They go with me book signings. They, they, I mean, they're like, oh, we're going to do a Muddy Roads trip. And I'm like, yep, let's get packed up. I mean, and my grandson wants to read it. He's only seven, and he's a very good reader, and, and, and he wants to read it. I'm like, not yet, not yet. You know, he knows the title, and he knows what it's about, but I don't want him to read it right now. So it started out as a legacy to my kids to ensure, for my son and my offsprings, to learn that, hey, you know, life is not easy, but just stay the course and have faith. You definitely obtain your dreams. I'm going to read one quote from the book because I think it's the most powerful quote from the entire piece. It comes from the balcony when you were in Tanzania with a suitor who had potential. (laughs) You know exactly what quote I'm going to be talking about. I'm trying to be serious. Yes. (laughs) Quote, come close and turn your back to me, Vela. I did it. Now close your eyes. I did it. Now without thinking, fall back into my arms. I did not do it. With eyes Opened wide, I turned toward him. And if I do not fall, I asked, then someone else will. He walked away and never looked back. Absolutely. Oh, but you're bringing chills to me. Yeah, I remember that that evening vividly. And you never saw him again? Um, I saw him, but it was like a switch. It was just turned off. I mean, I mean actually, he worked at the embassy. And um, so we saw each other, but, we, I mean, we were, like, hot and heavy. But I think he wanted to take it to a different level, and he wanted to see if I was all in with him. And I could not do it. I, 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 I'm a protector, especially of myself, and I wasn't ready, and I can't give, I, I just could not give myself to someone like that. I have. I'm married now, almost 20 years, to um, Shaka. <laughs> I fell. I fell in his arm, and I don't know why. It just, just, I don't know if it was the timing or he just had a different, you know, feel and touch about him. But, but at that time in my life, when that guy told me that, there was no way. I was on a high in my career and my social life, and, and I knew him, and I knew that if I fell, he would say, I got her. And with me, if I make a promise to fall back in his arm, I would stick with it, and I believe I would have been, well, that would have been marriage three, unsuccessful. We're talking to Vela Mbina, author of Muddy Roads, Blue Skies, Beyond the Mic. What was your best moment as a diplomat? Oh, my goodness. You want an incident or or, or, or a country? or <laughs> Best moment as a diplomat. I'm leaving it wide open for you. Best moment as a diplomat. Okay. This is this is what it was. I was on my way to Tanzania, to Africa, for the very first time. The first part of my career was all about other countries because I was afraid 
I'm African-American and I was afraid to go to, to Africa because of all the things that I would see on TV and I've heard from other diplomats. But something happened and I said, I have to go now. I have to take my child to Africa um, to see his roots. And on the way there, well, when we, we, were, we were about to land in Dar es Salaam, I looked down and something just came over me, maybe because, you know, I'm African-American, I was going to Africa, but I'm like, oh my God, I would never, ever, ever be able to come to Africa like this. I thank God for the Foreign Service. I thank God that they selected me to serve in Africa. They could have selected someone else. And to me, it was, it was, it was like the most, it is the most memorable memory of being a diplomat that I can go anywhere I want to. And even if I'm afraid to, if the government wanted me to go and send me, I would go and I would overcome whatever fears that I have. But I always remember that, like, thank God for being a diplomat, because I don't know if I would have ever made it there. I would have been too afraid all my life to go to the motherland. If I ask you your best moment, I got to ask you, what was your worst moment as a diplomat? My worst moment was and I won't call the post, <laughs> I think it's in the book, but um, I was really going to hold, like I said, I was, you know, just, just, just dedicated. I wanted to do my job and um, I wanted to learn. I'm going to my grandson, <laughs> Micah, he's reminding me of, of me, but I was at one post known to send people with, you know, with, with the medical conditions, you know, to kind of recoup. So it was kind of laid back, not a whole lot to do. And so, but I got there and I was young and energetic was doing my job, you know, trying to learn more and do more. Hey, you know, I'm vibrant, you know, that energy. And my supervisor, um, because when he came back from wherever he was, when I applied to go to another country, because I wasn't given the opportunity to do what I needed to do to grow at that post, he was very upset about it. So um, he called me in and he started calling me names, not nice names. And I didn't understand why. I'm like, why? You know, we, the, the system is there. If you don't like a post or whatever, you can get out or you can try to transfer. It was just really bad. And, and, and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm getting out of the Foreign Service. And I thought about it. And I'm like, no, I'm not getting out. Because people are who they are. I'll probably encounter more people like this. So I'm just going to suck it up. Let him say whatever he wants to say. But when he crosses the line, I'm going to walk out of his office and he can do whatever he wants with me. And he crossed the line. He, and it was, it was a discriminatory remark. And I just said, I'm not going to talk anymore. Do whatever you want to do. And I walked out. That was, um, uh, yeah, that wasn't good. And it'll, it'll be with me forever. Family and home is so important to you. Now that you're retired, how are you spending your time? I work for State Department part-time from home, as a matter of fact, but that's very easy. Uh, the year after I retired in 2015, about six months later, my grandson was diagnosed with autism and my son still struggling, you know, going to school and working, he and his girlfriend. So I asked him if I could just take him down to Florida where my retirement home was, just put him in a different environment, you know, let him go through his programs. And they did smart people. So the past two and a half years, I have 
been a grandmother running back and forth <laughs> to school, to after-school activities, and it's been great. And thank goodness for my husband, he um, and I decided on a place about an hour and a half away from my hometown. So I have the opportunity to go back and forth, you know, with ease to see my aging grandmother, well, a mother who is almost 94 years old, and her aunt, well, my aunt, her sister, which is um, going on 101, and bond with my sisters, you know. Um, they don't know this Bella, but I'm just having a great time, you know, visiting family and being with family in my household, you know, making sure that he is prepared, um, using the tools that he's given to be, you know, as successful as possible in life. So I'm glad I'm retired. I mean, I, I don't regret it at all. My husband's still in the foreign service, so that's, that's great. I, I've got the best of both worlds. He's overseas right now on, on a company tour, but his next assignment, we're all going to pack up and go. So I can be a trailing spouse versus the diplomat. We've had fun with Vela and Bino beyond the mic, but time's running out. So it's now time for the Rocky Nate. First thing that comes to your mind, no pressure. Oh, Lord, that's scary. <laughs> Last antique you bought? Um, a pot, frying pan. Last gift you bought, and who'd you buy it for? Vela, I bought a ring for myself. Most interesting meal you ever ate when traveling as part of the Foreign Service? Uh, balut, an egg in the Philippines that was like horribly rotten, <laughs> but I ate it. One food from your travels you'd eat over and over and over again? Mm, it's kalambuzi. It's roasted goat meat on the grill, outside grill, um, indigenous to uh Tanzania, well, East Africa. Love it. Can't wait to get some more. Last three songs you heard. Oh, um, one was Church Song, Amazing Grace, and Church Sunday, uh, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I heard that the other day and thought about my spouse, and I can't think of a third one, you know, the, the title. What event in your life would make a great movie, and who would you want to play you? The bombing of the embassy, the prologue in my book, that day was a long day in a movie in itself. And I would want my niece, uh, Tia Gonzalez. She wants to be an actress, and she just went off to college a few months ago, and I told her that once my book become a movie, I want her to play me. She said, Auntie, I would be honored. I hope your dream comes true. <laughs> If you had to write another chapter for that book, what would you have named that chapter? Mm, I would name it, um, oh God, Ooh, fun. Going to put you on the spot, most cherished ambassador in the Foreign Service. <laughs> oh, that's, I can't, all of them, you know, I'm a diplomat, I can't. <laughs> Um, all of them. I I never had um, a bad ambassador. They're my leader, and you know, and I would not have been at a post if I could not serve under them. So, but there are some that you know that I like for different reasons. But um, I would say one who lives in New Mexico now. He's just been um, very um, supportive of me, and one reason that I like him the most is because I had collateral duty as an EEO counselor at that post, and I used to brief him. And, you know, he told me one day, he said, he said, you know, Bella, he said, you're one of the best officers I've ever had. 
And that meant a lot to me because, you know, I'm a specialist, even though we're all considered foreign service officers, but I'm a specialist, foreign service specialist. And the fact that he said of all the folks in the embassy, I was the best. And yeah, I'll always love him and thank him for telling me that because it made me kept on the track that I was on and keep getting better. She transformed her life from two failed marriages into a life as a diplomat in the Foreign Service. Best way to describe it, read her book, Muddy Roads, Blue Skies, Vela and Bina. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Sean. It was fun. <laughs> and that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. Beyond the Mic.